All right, here we are in Le Chateau. Good morning to you. Good morning, Daniel. Good to see you, my friend. Oh, it's good to see you as well. And to you. And also. A good morning. To you, a good morning. And to you as well, a good morning. And on to you, a good morning. <laughs> How has your morning been thus far? Dude, I woke up and the first three words I heard this morning were, Poppy should die. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. She did it, man. She, uh, she's. Poppy? Poppy, Papalopagus. And we, post, we posted those thirst trap photos on Instagram and got a lot of good feedback. And she is super cute. She's also towing the line of death at this moment. Oh, boy. And you left her there alone? I left her there alone. Oh, boy. I think it's for her to figure out, really. But she's <laughs> she's getting kind of bold, man. She's uh, stepping into Jamie's territory. Whew, yeah, she's messing with Jamie's sleep. And uh, yesterday we came home, and we have these two back rooms we kind of use. Um, that We leave the dogs in when we're gone for long periods mm-hmm. of time. They have plenty of room to play and stuff. And she figured out a way to move. We use these trash cans to block the door into the kitchen. She moved one of them. And Oof. so she got out, ate one of our plants, pooped all over the rug, pee pee uh, in the hallway. And so Jamie walked in last night after we had a fine dinner with the pod god. And uh, oh, Not for good. me, it's entertaining. <laughs> you have to kind of like hide that yeah. in the moment. But uh, Poppy decided to carry that same energy through the night. Yeah, dude. Maybe that plant wasn't sitting well in the old tummy. (laughs) She was up a lot last night. So I woke up to Poppy should die. So good morning to you. (laughs) Good morning (laughs) to you. Best wishes for all. Yes. Fingers crossed, Papa Lapagus. Like a moment you're still alive. Poppy better get some some things squared away there. Yeah, no doubt. How was your drive into the chateau this morning? Oh, it was good. It was yeah. a beautiful day. It's beautiful got day. spring in the air. Yeah. Loving that vibe. No doubt. Any fine tunes dropping in the eardrums? Ah, uh, I'll tell you what. I'm listening to this new album that just dropped. What you got? It's Anodyne Diversion. Come on. Yeah. And it's uh, it's actually by a local artist here. Yeah. So it's the album title is Burning Brighter. Okay. My early favorite. Yeah. Is Further Closer. Okay. Yeah. Just kind of based on the album or the song title, sounds like a maybe a relationship sort of thing. Well, I think I think I've um, redundantly said this a, a plethora of times, but lyrics are very important to me, and I really like the lyrics of that one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how do they go? Uh, further and closer. Perfect. Love that. <laughs> so it basically, yeah, to go into it, it's a it's a great album. Yeah, it's got like uh, I man. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to mess this all up, but it, it, to me, it has like hints of like kind of postal service okay. uh, stuff to it that I hearken back to. Yeah, so, that's nice. Yeah, it's good to listen to. And um, the the further closer talks about in a relationship, one person wanting to be further and one person wanting to be closer, and then it reverses. Okay. And so for me, I thought it was a very wise way of saying that the, the dance in, in a relationship can be... Uh, Complex. Complex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have you given it a listen? The album? I li- on the way into into the Chateau this morning, I only got through probably the first couple of few songs, but it was neat. Postal Service vibes are kind of what, yeah, ring true. It's an mm-hmm. electronic kind of sound mm-hmm. and um, yeah, super unique. And I know you mentioned Anna Diversion, who is Diana Stewart, mm-hmm. right? And she was also a contributor or maybe the primary author on the book that we had highlighted earlier when we met with Brian Peterson. Mm-hmm. Be Pete the pod god. With the pod god, man. Climate change solutions overcoming the capital climate contradiction. Yeah. Just Come like uh, just that household, maybe five to eight standard deviations above. Above. 
Yeah. yeah. You yeah. just got artistic creativity coupled with intellectual property just Good pumping out, place. just falling out of the windows over there, that, that casa. That house, no doubt. Come on. Whatever's going on over there. Yeah. <laughs> must be in the water. Must be in the water. Also, yeah. this is the week of, so this is going to drop the week of the Flagstaff Film Fest. Yeah. It's a 20-year anniversary. Ooh, show me them. April 7th to April 10th. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of days be at the Orpheum Flagstaff on Aspen Ave. And I believe you can find tickets through the Orpheum website and the Flagstaff Mountain Films website. Yeah. So go go get your tickets. You don't want to miss out. Get it's in person back from a couple of uh, virtual years. So go connect. Yeah, it does sound like a good time. And does it anticipate seeing some really cool films? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. And what else do we got on the docket? Yeah, we're for going today? beyond flag. Lucky for our listeners. Yeah. They've already put up with this, and then they will also now have a third person that they get to listen to. And so hopefully that will keep them engaged. That will compensate for that, this. Yeah. Yes. So sorry about us, guys. So there's an early dip and then a recovery. Yeah. Which is kind of a good way to do it, right? Yeah. We'll go on the recency effect. Yeah. Deal with the difficult stuff first. Yes. Yep. There we go. So today we're going Beyond Flag with Rand Jenkins, partner, CEO, visionary, and director of strategy at Mountain Mojo Group which is a digital marketing group located right here in Flagpole, Arizona, nice. <laughs> Prior to digital marketing, Rand did a whole lot of service industry in his early years. Leaving the tray life behind, he started in the world of production in 2003, working as a production assistant on the MTV Video and Music Awards show. Man, we might have to look that up and see who was, who was there, when, and what happened. The MTV VMAs. VMAs in 03, man. That's, that's a good year. Uh, since then, he has managed and produced over 1,400 concerts, festivals, fundraisers. How do you pronounce that? Galas. Galas. Not galas. 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 Yes. And special events. He co-founded, owned, and operated Flagstaff's Green Room, a music venue and bar in Flagstaff, Arizona for seven years, and acted as the GM of the Pepsi Amphitheater for another three. He also founded and produced three community music festivals in Flagstaff, including the Hullabaloo, Flagstaff Cornucopia, and check this. The Kaleidoscope Campout. Yeah. The KKO. He went a different direction with that third letter in the acronym. It was a smart move. Wise. Good <laughs> Good job. Yes. In late 2015, he started Mount Mojo Group uh, with his partner, Austin Leggett. <clears throat> Since then, they've continually grown the business, assembling a talented group of creatives. In his spare time, he sat on the boards for Habitat for Humanity, the Flagstaff Arts and Leadership Academy, the Flagstaff Music Festival and Firefly Gatherings. He mentored for Big Brothers Big Sisters and also volunteer and does a lot of volunteer opportunities citywide. All of this is secondary, of course, to traveling and reconnecting with his friends and his family. Yeah. So check him out in this episode. There's great stories, some of which from those uh, experiences in the green room and uh, with the Pepsi Amphitheater, including uh, stories of Les Claypool. Come on. From Primus? Primus. Huh? Insane Clown Posse. Yeah. I know you're a fan. Oh, big time. I'm a juggalo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I can get the rest out. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, who's not? <laughs> we all got a little bit of juggalo in us. <laughs> and uh, Ario Speedwagon. And uh, he has a lot of sage guru advice sprinkled in there with these entertaining stories that he has of these musicians. In the word of Jason Costello... He, he, Jason from Canyon Cooler says, I find Rand to be a bit of an empath with a lot of guru man management vibe. One part Mr. Rogers, one part Yoda. <laughs> yeah. 
I think I think we witnessed that in the interview today, huh? Yeah, no doubt. That's a great description. Yeah. Well, thanks for tuning in as we go beyond flag with Rand Jenkins. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production, created by, with, and for the people of Flagstaff building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips, and Cody Bayless, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go Beyond Flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory. Back in Le Chateau, we are here with Rand. Rand, thanks for sitting with us today. Thanks for having me. So do you mind taking us a little bit through your work at Mountain Mojo and what it is that you do and what might, yeah, again, if we followed you around for a day there, what would we see you doing? Right on. Um, You know, I I wear three hats at work on a day-to-day basis. So Mountain Mojo in general is a a marketing agency that builds websites, designs logos, and then we have monthly retainer services. So digital marketing stuff, social media, PR, photo, video, all of those things. But the... um, but my day-to-day uh, really is split up between uh, director strategy. So I do a lot of the digital marketing strategy for our clients on a day-to-day, um, making sure that they've got you know long-term plans, short-term plans, working with the team on how to make them our campaigns most efficient. And then my other job is business development. So I've got to go out there and, and meet with people to, to talk about you know getting new clients in the door. And then the third job is in principle, I guess. So you know from an ownership perspective, they refer to it in, in EOS, which is how we operate our business as the visionary. So I have to continually introduce kind of where the business is going to go in the next one to 10 years and, and then reverse engineer that into a conversation with the team about uh, the future of the business. Mm. So of those three, do you have a preference for one <laughs> or is it just pros and cons in each? You know, I get that a lot and I do have, you know, the, the ideal vision three to five years from now where I I wake up and I don't really show up until maybe 10 and I support the team between 10 and noon. And, um, and that's through the director of strategy role, mm-hmm. making sure that everybody's got what they need. And then um, in the middle of the day or a couple hours a week or maybe a couple hours a month, I'll do the ownership thing, try and figure that out and probably really focus that on a quarterly or in an annual meeting retreat type basis where we dig in. And then in the afternoon, spend a couple hours um, you know, with business development, although we'll have a salesperson by then, it'll more be, you know, me just making sure our partners and our clients are, I don't know, just doing the social thing, I guess, making sure that they're healthy relationships. You had the title chief imagination officer. And yeah. I guess I wonder, I thought that was a really creative uh, name for that role. And I would wonder what led to Mountain Mojo? How did, how did that even become a thing? That's a good question. Um, you know, I was coming out of the the music, like the promotions business. And so marketing, I had marketed for a long time, but more like guerrilla marketing. And so the digital marketing side of things really made sense to me. I was, you know, really tired of bartending and getting bands on and off stage. And I don't know, just the other highs and lows of selling tickets for shows and those types of things. And so I wanted a little more consistency and, and I definitely wanted, um, you know, to be able to work with people that were a little more on the professional side versus the service industry side, which has some dark spaces to it. And so they made the transition into digital marketing because 
I wanted a little bit more freedom. I didn't want to work till three in the morning. And I definitely wanted to, to be able to continue to connect people the same way I do like fans and musicians or people in vodka. But it was, uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where I'm a brand advocate for my friends and for small businesses. And I wanted to do that, but professionally. So digital marketing made sense. Did you have to go get trained in that? Or was it just something that you were used to, like you're saying, from guerrilla yeah. marketing and running the green room? You know, most people, uh, they always joke around with me about, you know, like, well, for how many years did you do it before you opened the business? And I was like, absolutely, absolutely zero, zero years. And, but the, um, you know, I got my, went and grabbed my partner who was designing a lot of the show posters for the venue for a long time, the venue and the amphitheater. And he really understood the digital side of things. He could build websites, he could do graphic design, and I knew social media really well. So we kind of had all those things figured out, but we called it Mountain Mojo Group because we figured, you know, we'd find experts within each channel or each tactic of marketing to be able to help us out. So it, it worked out where we went in blind. Okay. Yeah. No, no, like 10,000 hours component, huh? No. And it's, it's funny because I, I actually, you know, you go through that imposter syndrome for quite some time and it was right around five years where I was like, I don't really feel like an imposter anymore. And then now that we're seven years in, I do. I definitely feel like an expert in certain situations. Yeah. So it feels really good. But yeah, that, that estimate of hours is pretty dang accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So the 10,000 hours just came after. You just it was after <laughs> lob it out there, commit, and then the 10,000 hours come in. Yeah. People always ask me where I, what I went for, to school for. And I was like, well, I was going to be a middle school math teacher. Yeah. And they were like, well, how'd that turn out? And I was like, not even close. Yeah. Still on my way there. Yeah. Working toward it. Yeah. I think I've gotten like 63 credit hours. So if I ever need to go back, change careers. Yeah. I'm halfway there. And did you say math? Like middle school math? Yeah. So that's really different than the chief imagination officer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess for consequence in a room like that, you need chief imagination. That was the, the goal, <laughs> or at least the vision there was... You know, math has always come really easily to me. Yeah. And so, and, but other people have really struggled with it and I wanted to connect people with that, but in a really, you know, I guess you could say an imaginative way mm -hmm. and inspire kids that way. And so I don't know, it's, you know, in a lot of ways it, there is a, some parallels there. Yeah. Do you ever feel glad that you didn't find yourself going that route? When I talk to teachers. Yeah. We've got a lot of educators in my family and, um, you know, my, I have my middle brother who teaches, he teaches Hawaiian history. And then, um, you know, there's, I don't know, we just, we really enjoy the education side of things in, in my family. And it just made sense at that time. But my, the need for my lifestyle to be a little bit different and to have more access to being able to use my imagination or create ideas on a lot of different platforms, you know, each client is kind of like its own canvas for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it quickly took me away from, you know, the entrepreneur side of me took me away from a classroom setting. Yeah. Well, you definitely, seven years in, you definitely have your hand in things because you've been referenced several times by our recent guests, Kaylee Quick and Jason. Jason from Canyon Coolers. What did Jason say? It's like Yoda, a mix of Yoda. Yeah. He said something about you have like a guru management vibes mixed with Yoda. 
And I told Jason, um, I work with someone who considers himself a chief imagination officer. I don't want to sit in a room with two of those. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is kind of Dan's nightmare, really. Yeah, yeah. just a bunch of ideas that have uh, no way out in the future. Yeah. 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 Well, what's the first practical step to that? I don't know. (laughs) Figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Do you do you experience that? So you have a business partner, Austin, right? so do you come with your imaginative ideas and then uh, Austin's like, well, what's what's the practical application or how do we how do we put that into play? You know, he, he's a really interesting mix. I'm super fortunate to have him around, but he, you know, appreciates the vision and the long term stuff. And mm-hmm. he's also extremely realistic. So he's the realistic side. I'm the optimistic side. And then we have, you know, Sydney, who is a big leader within our group that mm-hmm. kind of brings the how mm-hmm. this is going to happen mm-hmm. and it'll quickly check me. But the, um, but I, I realized maybe eight or 10 years ago when I was coming out of the venue or just out of the promotion world that, you know, I can't share all of my ideas because all of my ideas give other people hope that those ideas will come true. And in my mind, they're just ideas for for the moment. And so, I actually curb a tremendous amount of, of what comes through my mind and then what I say out loud. And there's probably, you know, 10% that comes out and 90% that does not. And, um, and so, you know, I journal or I have a big long notes section on my phone where most of those ideas go to, to just sit. And I do the same thing uh, with my girlfriend. It's, you know, I, I, I can't introduce too much about what the future looks like in my mind because um, she's a very literal person, logical person, mm-hmm. and she wants to know, you know, how in the world that can happen, or, you know, she, she gets into the steps, and it's too early for me. I like to think of an idea, go all the way to the end of what the idea looks like successfully, reverse engineer it all the way back into some sort of a plan, and then usually, you know, a quarter of the way or halfway going back, it's like, oh, that's a horrible idea, and then move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a funny balance to have somebody who dreams a lot around you and it's unhealthy in a lot of, in a lot of ways. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, last sentence there is so validating. I get really sick jollies out of just throwing ideas at Dan and watching him kind of cringe and like kind of shut down a little bit and then get his calculator out. It's like, that's for me, I just get so much pleasure out of watching that process happen. Yeah, you actually learn to recognize the blank expression on my face where the wheels have just like come to a grinding halt upstairs. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> Why did you ever say that? Yeah. Why did you string that series of words together? Yeah. yeah. What about, I guess I'd wonder in that same vein, Rand, like, do you run ideas through filters? How do you determine what? 10% stays and what 90% gets thrown away. Usually just what's most realistic or what is relevant in the moment. You know, a lot of my ideas, I, I go off on tangents in my mind and the imagination takes over. And so, you know, I'll run through skits or songs or commercials or like taglines or all of these things just based off of one, you know, somebody says one thing. Mm-hmm. And so those things are just, if I said them out loud, I would get the same blank look. Mm-hmm. And I, I discovered that, you know, in my probably early to mid thirties over and over again, when I spoke out loud, people would just look at me like, what, I don't, what, what did you just say and why, how is that relevant? Um, and then I would have to explain it. And then it was just too much, but <laughs> that always feels really good, right? Like you're just like, Hey, I have this idea. 
I'm going to put it out there. No vulnerability in this whatsoever. <laughs> Just to be met with absolute <laughs> blank stares. Yeah. Judgment. Shot down. Judgment. Oh my goodness. Dan's number two strength finder. Our <laughs> scale on the strength finder is judgment. It's a really good, <laughs> really good mix. <laughs> well, the, the way we use the word when we joke about me having judgment is a characteristic is like that I judge things, but it, it's, it's actually meant to mean it's a strength that I have good judgment. So when I hear that idea and you get that expression... <laughs> <laughs> There's a chance that expression is very valid. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Maybe discernment's another word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is funny. So is that kind of the dynamic that you and Austin have then? It sort of acts like you bring big ideas. You're saying there are some that won't share. And then is he kind of the first person that you would work with on that? For sure. Yeah. yeah. So the, the EOS thing that I mentioned, we, him and I have a, a same page meeting is what, the, what it's called on a weekly basis. And so, um, you know, he keeps me pretty disciplined when it comes to, you know, random ideas that come in the middle of the night or, you know, in the middle of a, a business day or in the middle of a meeting. Mm -hmm. And so I put all of those things into one spot for us to be able to have our meeting on a weekly basis and, and run through them. Um, but I would say, you know, again, probably the 90-10 rule or probably even worse, maybe like not worse, probably even more 95-5 um, actually make it to that meeting. And then everything else is really a a long-term discussion that gets tabled until we get a, either a quarterly or a, an annual meeting where, you know, something, a really big idea would, it needs to be unpacked and it needs a few hours and it needs to be talked through before it's introduced. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's definitely the first, first filter. And then, and I learned that as well when I first started the business, you know, I would go directly to the employees with what the future looked like mm -hmm. and it would be extremely disruptive. So just become a little more disciplined with mm -hmm ideation in general yeah yeah and then just the way you sort of hone in on that and present it yeah because once it runs through his filter you know then it can go to sydney or, or the rest of the team and their you know their brains are on the opposite side of austin and i's and and so they're able to you know logically think through what you know how it would actually get implemented or what a process would look like or a system a new system and and then that's how things change what about just like, who is on the receiving end of Mountain Mojo? That is the very first, like, just the idea of that as a group. Who is the first person to hear that idea? That's a good question. You know, I, I dug up a business plan from 2014, and it was probably 2013 or 2014. It, it was just called Aspen Marketing. And, yeah, I don't remember if I, I spoke that out loud. And so maybe I, I hit up Austin. I think it was, you know part-time at a print shop and part-time bartending out at the Oakmont. And, and so I hit him up with that idea, but he might've been the first person to, to actually hear that. That's the other place that I put my ideas is I run, I'll run through a full business plan. So I probably have like 30 or 40 of those now that sit in a Google drive that, you know, it's either a business idea or it's a concept. And so then, you know, put pen to paper from a business owner perspective and, yeah. and run through a business plan. So yeah, he might've been the first person. It's a good question. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, I was wondering, I was kind of just reflecting on our own thing. Like, what was the very first time that even this idea started to unfold and develop and how that was met? Do you remember how Austin met that even? You know, I think he had, he was at a, a turning point in his life where he wanted something a little more tangible and and a little, you know, he wanted to come out of the bartender world. He wanted to come out of you know, service industry in general. And, and he was, geez, probably a handful of years out of college. And so owning your own business although he probably didn't realize how heavy it was going to be, um, seemed attractive to him 
right away. You know, he didn't really have any of that pushback. I think some of the the bitterness that us entrepreneurs gain is, you know, through time. And there's usually, like, we usually come in pretty optimistic and pretty excited. And then it takes a couple of years of losing money and managing people you don't want to manage and all of those things before you're, like, a little more realistic about what a business plan would look like in, in real life. And I don't think he had that experience yet to be able to, to push back. He does now. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. <laughs> Through that seven years. Then. Yeah. yeah. Getting that 10,000 hours. Yeah. 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 Well, so, um, what a cool spot to be in, in your life, to be, uh, confident in one of the ideas. And it's, it's really cool to hear how introspective you are and how aware you are of your own process for thinking something through and then being selective about what to share and not share. Um, but you've mentioned two things to me that are stick out in terms of your history that probably led to some of both this self-awareness and where you've ended up business wise. First, uh, the shift away from a middle school math teacher <laughs> and that went, did that go into the club and the gorilla, gorilla marketing stuff or like, when did that shift happen and why did it happen? You know, I think it was probably my my dislike of education or college in general, you know, mm-hmm. I gave it a couple of years and I just, I couldn't fit in. I couldn't grasp why I was taking courses and, and you know, what I was going to be and how I was going to be. I just wanted to, to fix everything all the time, you know, and just come up with new ideas to be able to make the world a better place. And, and so, yeah, it was probably in my early twenties that, you know, I started to bounce around. I moved out here from Florida and lived in the Grand Canyon. And then I, lived up in Eugene for a little while. I lived out in Hawaii for a little while. And as I was bouncing around, I just, I, I knew that I didn't want to go back to college and that the college was probably the only route to get to teaching. And then I also knew that, you know, within that teaching space that I just wanted more, I wanted something different than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think teaching is, you know, it's the number one occupation in the country. I think that the more emphasis we could put on and in around education, the better it would fix so many other things, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's still really my foundationally, that's, you know, where I put a lot of my energy in the nonprofit volunteering world. But, um, yeah, there's somehow or another, probably in my mid twenties, I would say I found out that I was an entrepreneur and I just didn't know how to channel that, but I knew that I would, I didn't want to teach. Yeah. How did you come to know that? So it was probably, you know, late 20s, mid to late 20s is when I moved to Flagstaff. And that's when I started to better understand or I was curious enough to ask business owners about how and why they were operating their business. Mm -hmm. And that got me, you know, journaling a lot and thinking through things. And then I was like, that's who I want to be. I want to be a business owner. Mm -hmm. And then as I thought through that, I was like, you know, there's probably all these other ideas that would, that could actually make money. And then I, that led me to, oh my goodness, I'm probably, you know, this entrepreneur that everybody talks about. And it's mm-hmm. funny when Allison and I met, we've been together almost three and a half years now. And, um, I told her I was an entrepreneur before I told her I was a business owner. That's usually just how I lead. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I told that to my friends. And they said, so he's unemployed. And I was like, <laughs> I guess that's the perception of that word in the, out there in the world. Yeah. I was thinking when I hear entrepreneur, I think of someone who has like a million things going. Yeah. Just like a lot of plates spinning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, well, I listen to a lot of the podcast of other entrepreneurs, 
So it's a little easier for me to, to wrap my head around the difference between an entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur. Uh-huh. And then, you know, and just a business owner, which I think those are three very different things. Yeah. What, what it takes, or I guess the feeling that you get when you take an idea and then you bring it to life is, is pretty um, amazing. That's the attraction for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering in that, like the, def- the difference between what you say, entrepreneur, there are three things, a business owner and a serial entrepreneur is at the third. Yeah. How do you delineate those three? So in my mind, you know, an entrepreneur is constantly trying to make their business better or, you know, their, their lane, their focus, where a serial entrepreneur, you know, could have one business in one industry and then go start another business in another industry and, and probably, you know, multiple businesses in, in multiple channels. And then, um, you know, a business owner for me, or at least the business owners I've interacted with that don't, don't have that entrepreneurial gene, I, I think they're, they're really, they got into business um, from a money aspect and process and systems, and they were really focused on more, more about growing their business be, in order to create a career um, versus growing the business because they were really curious about how to make the business better. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but... Mm. Right. And then you find yourself more in that entrepreneur lane. That is still like the lane that you would yeah. identify with. Yeah, I've been an unsuccessful entrepreneur for long enough to finally <laughs> hopefully become a successful entrepreneur here soon. And then, uh, but the goal is to be a serial entrepreneur for sure. Yeah. yeah. We had this really funny experience with Jason and he was talking about just kind of opening Canyon and having the the experience of like doing well, right? And initially feeling like, I'm going to live on my own island and then uh, having like maybe a competitor come up and checking out the website or having something fail and then just feeling like I'm going to die un- alone under a bridge yeah. for his words, something like that. I guess I was wondering if you've had that same experience. For sure. I, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the entrepreneur's roller coaster. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully it doesn't last too long. I mean, usually you, know, you're, you get five years in or the 10,000 hours and you start to realize you either make a run for it, which a lot of entrepreneurs do. And then, you know, yeah. You, you go back to a place where you don't have to be the boss. You're not the last person in, in the line of the, the chain of command. Um, or you, yeah, you try and figure out a way, buckle down and, and figure it out. And it, it starts to work for you. Mm-hmm. But him and I are both very similar in that way. It was the same thing with Hullabaloo. We, you know, sat down at the bar and, you know, I pulled out a big piece of paper and just started drawing and Next thing you know, it, it was a, a site, a site plan, you know, for the park <laughs> itself. So, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you mind taking us through the development of Hullabaloo? I guess maybe even for our listeners who might not know what is Hullabaloo, can you describe it and then its own development to what it is now? You bet. Our, our tagline was all things Flagstaff, but basically the vision there was to create a festival or an event for everybody who lives in Flagstaff to come together and celebrate one another, to celebrate uh, music and art and um, and just the, the community of Flagstaff itself. And so we wanted to be able to give a microphone or a platform or a stage to as many organizations, musicians, um, artists, uh, you know, politicians have spoken. I mean, whoever it is that is trying to bring Flagstaff together, we wanted to give them a voice. And so it ended up being, you know, just a big festival downtown with a whole bunch of vendors and a couple of stages and some dance floors and some food and some beer and, and, uh, yeah, it slowly grew from there. 
So Hullabaloo, I told the same thing to Jason as we used to live. My wife and I used to live on the corner of Birch and Sick Creek. Yeah. And whenever, <laughs> whenever it was Hullabaloo, it was like, I guess we're not sleeping for a few days. Like it was just, the music was raging. Yeah. Oh man. So it was a good feeling in the air for sure. Yeah. It's one of those things we didn't, we felt bad for the neighbors for sure. Yeah. We tried to keep the, we had the decibel meter on at all times but did you use it it wasn't always <laughs> it was is there, also the, is there yeah. a little angst behind your voice with this where are you going do you use it yeah. <laughs> no this is great yeah it brought such like a fun uh, fun spirit to the town during those it would be like over a weekend usually right yeah it First. started with just saturday and then went to saturday and sunday so i'd wonder two other events that you've been involved with i'd be curious to hear a little bit about your time with the green room i know for me i've uh, had a lot of great experiences there to a lot of cool shows yeah so you know for folks in flagstaff it was mogion brewing company for a long time and then it was high spirits distillery and so there was a a bar in downtown flagstaff that was a brewery distillery for a long time and then um in 2005 when i moved here i actually lived above the bar and i learned how to make beer learned how to make vodka and was the janitor and the door guy and sometimes they let me bartend and um, and a few years later, they decided to expand the production for the vodka. And so we had the opportunity to, to buy the business and, and move it in there. And when they removed the brewery and the distillery, we were like, man, this is more than enough room for a really sweet music venue. And uh, my partners and I always loved music so much. And so we thought, you know, it'd be really cool to be able to, you know, run a bar, which we were all service industry people. And we knew how to, to do that, but also, you know, get into that music promotion world and start to bring bands and host really fun events in downtown Flagstaff. It was a pretty big room, you know, we, we could fit 500 people in there. And so we could have some pretty big shows and it was fun. A whole lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, where did you develop your love for music? Was it just listening to music? Did you play instruments? Did that happen as a child or did it happen as an adult? You know, it was probably middle school. I really looked up to, I have three older brothers and the one closest to me is seven years older than me. So he was, you know, the coolest person in my world and, <laughs> and he loved music so much and he was an athlete. So I wanted to be an athlete and he loved music. So I love music. And he took me to my first reggae show. I think it was probably 13 or 14 years old. Um, and I shouldn't have been in the venue, so smoky and not, <laughs> and not cigarette smoke. And it was, um, it was just an amazing experience to be able to see a whole crowd of people like moving back and forth and back. And then, you know, I had all the tapes, so I was really fired up to get like a t-shirt and yeah. I bought the t-shirt and the merch thing. And I went to work to school the next day, smelled like weed, nobody knew, but, um, but <laughs> From that day forward, I was just like, the, the experience that you have at a live show is unlike any other experience mm -hmm. that I have ever felt in life. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to repeat that over and over again. So from that mm -hmm. point forward, I just, you know, I, I fell in love with more types of music, which led me to more concerts, which led me to more festivals, which kind of just put me in that space where I needed, I wanted to be on a dance floor, you know, as, as much as possible. So it was like uh, the shared energy that comes in that space together that really attracted you. Is it live music yeah. or do you also, it sounds like you do like um, recorded music, you reference owning tapes. So do you prefer live music then? Is, is the shared en energy a prominent component to what you enjoy or is it just music collectively? I guess if I had to prioritize, I'd say music in general. Um, but that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about the connection piece of music because 
you know, sometimes I'll put music on when I'm on a long run and I'll connect to that artist or that song in a much deeper way than, um, or just as deep as, as being at a festival. So that, that's an interesting thought there. Yeah, we had this neat experience of you meeting with you over breakfast at Martin's and then you sent us some songs that were kind of representative of what you were feeling or the vibes of the energy during our meeting, I guess, if I sum that up right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's sometimes when I'm meeting with people, like I'll start to see, I don't know, colors or ideas for a TV show or a million different things. And so sometimes I just, I hear music when I'm like talking to someone and that's what I was hearing when I was talking to you guys and I was just thinking about it and I was like, oh, I'll share that over, see if they, maybe they would be into this type of stuff. Oh yeah, it was yeah. great to get it. It was funny because, uh, so for me with music and my background with music, lyrics were a big thing and like meaning and so immediately when you sent those over, I went and looked up the lyrics and looked up people's interpretation of the lyrics. And one of them was kind of like a breakup song. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> What's the message here? Rand's breaking up with us. Oh, yeah. Like a, there's a subconscious level of communication. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I mean, I'm just joking about it. But, um, you know, for me, I think my experience with music, lyrics are much more forward yeah. I meant to send you a song. I'll send you one later, too. Nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's from Grouch and Eli. I don't know if you know who they are. I do. Yeah. yeah I, was gonna say, them I think at the they bar. played yeah. at the green room. Yeah. Um, I'll send you one from them. I don't know if you noticed Dan's pupils when you mentioned cigarette smoke, but they dilated. <laughs> Dan has this similar experience of being in the clubs and, uh, yeah, just getting down. Huh? <laughs> yeah. It's right up my alley. <laughs> Meaning kicking, punching, screaming, middle fingering. Yeah, at our shows, <laughs> cigarettes weren't allowed. <laughs> and other smoke was not allowed. <laughs> uh, that's a tangent. Why don't you go there? <laughs> For um, this moment now. <laughs> I, I actually want to hear, hear some green room stories. So when you went there and you turned it into the music venue, so the distillery gets moved out. And the brewery gets moved out and you make that decision to say, I've always loved music. Let's create a space. This can, this is a big enough space for that. Yeah. What was that like? What was that experience like then to manage acts coming in and to be involved in that? You know, it, it fed my day-to-day -day curiosity, you know, like my need to learn uh, really well because we had to learn so much so fast. And it also, you know, a tremendous amount of trauma associated to, you know, when you start your own business and it doesn't work or it doesn't mm -hmm. succeed, mm -hmm. uh, because it's usually, you know, if you're a, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to push even when it's unrealistic and try and, and keep something successful. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience because we went in guns blazing and we tripled the revenue and it was, you know, we built everything out and everything was amazing. And then I didn't understand the cyclical nature of, you know, just music venues or clubs or bars in general and how, you know, you can only scale up, um, for temp like short periods of time. Well, most places can, otherwise, you know, you'll see a club like kind of rename itself or go into some sort of a new genre or something different. And we just thought we were inclusive enough and the town was small enough where we could stay hot for a long time. And, you know, after a couple of years, few years, we realized that that wasn't the case. And then things got really tight and really hard for business. And so the music was a, I don't know, a nice escape when the bands did come, but for the most part, like the rest of running the venue and, and doing those types of things were just, it was, a, it was a grind, 
really, really hard grind. Mm -hmm. Was it hard managing the acts? Like how consistent were the shows you put on? Uh, or I guess consistent's not the right, right word, maybe reliable or communicative <laughs> for the sure. people that you were trying to arrange things for? It's a good question. You know, luckily there's some promoters in town that would bring the really large acts in. And so they would front the money and those people were pretty organized and they would advance, you know, with a, a lot of um, organization. And then some of the smaller acts or the local, some of the local acts um, really had their stuff together and they were amazing to work with. And mm -hmm. some other ones were kind of just, they put something together and throw a poster together and, and hopefully you would, they would show up and sometimes they wouldn't. And so then we started filling in the gaps of like some karaoke and some country nights and I don't know, other club type things. And that's where our identity kind of just got, it went all over the place. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think we had the lead singer of Fishbone kick the door in, you know, the apartment door and <laughs> cops called in the middle of the night. And I don't know. Yeah, I've, I think that that was probably... Yeah, I don't know what the, the largest point of disappointment, like the most disappointment I felt at the green room. But there was there was just a whole lot of challenges, you know, when the cops come or when there's a fight or when there's something that bad is happening between people where they're not mm -hmm. connecting. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Those were the that's what drove me away from it for sure. But I don't know. It, managing bands was always fun. You know, I got to run the amphitheater for a few years and. It was the same thing, the the planning part of it and getting them on stage and then seeing the crowd react, no better feeling. Mm. Um, everything that leads up to it and everything after it, you know, cleaning up for Insane Clown Posse for a week and a half, <laughs> that's that's what will drive you out of the business. <laughs> yeah, I thought, you were, I thought you were referencing that as an example of the reward, and I was like, ah, huh. <laughs> you know what, Me, meeting ICP, yeah. dream come true. <laughs> That was a different they moment. They everything. Cleaning up what after is all it? the juggalos. It's, uh, what's it? Killer J or? Oh, man. Yeah, there's, they have the, the moniker show, the show names. Didn't they, like, get arrested and fly? Didn't one get in, like, a fight at the barbershop downtown? I've yep. seen this in the newspaper a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, like, dang, ICP got arrested and flung. That was pre-show, <laughs> yeah. which is the hard part. Oh, it was pre-show. <laughs> yeah, you never know. I mean, we, we lose all sorts of band members around town, especially if they're... <laughs> So, you know, the cadence is the bus will usually get here. You know, they're coming from another show. We're a smaller stop. But so the bus will get here, you know, usually seven in the morning ish, you know, wherever they left from and everybody's sleeping. And then they wake up midday and, you know, we've already run the bus driver to the hotel and we've got the laundry and we've got, you know, obviously their sound engineers are all unloading the tractor trailers. But when the band wakes up, you're like, oh, man, uh -oh. let's let's see. Yeah. Are they going to meditate or are they going to? You know, like Les Claypool, he just like set up all these little army men and he had a little air rifle and he was super mellow until <laughs> his, his tour manager was like, Hey, you know, you have a Pepsi logo on the stage. And I was like, yeah, it's the Pepsi amphitheater. And they're like, he's not going to like that. And so then you have to, you know, try and figure out how to remove a tremendous amount of stuff in a small amount of time. And, um, I don't know, REO Speedwagon was like my worst nightmare. There's there's some good stories of bands coming in and really embracing Flagstaff and going for a run or like just really, you know, the Grand Canyon 
And then there's other, yeah, high maintenance. It's just like anybody, I guess. Yeah. You know, well, any people. Let's get one of each. Let's get going into detail. And maybe the ICP one would be a good example of the not oh so good. Goodness. And then, uh, yeah, share one about one that you can remember where <laughs> you you were impressed by. Maybe they shocked you even that they just really embraced or took a run or whatever. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know. I've, I always talk about Aria Speedwagon and the lead singer just... It was really, really tough to work with, um, you know, mostly just from a, I don't know, the 80s rockers standpoint, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the ICP thing, they had their own two liters of soda. And so they shake them up and they put their thumb in there and then they launch them into the crowd. And in doing so, it covers the people, the fans, which they really enjoy being sticky, but it also covers all of the chairs and the lawn and the walls and anything you can imagine. And the crazy part is that then they launch um, confetti into the crowd after oh, it gets sticky. No. So you have both of those things that make for an incredibly challenging um, cleanup. And then, um, you know, we had Prairie Home Companion come through mm-hmm. a couple of times. You know, they always bring in one or two acts. people, acts, yeah. to be able to come and sing. And usually it's a solo project. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, you know, Friday night loading them in. Their stage is like there's so many props on their stage that it takes a long time for production mm-hmm. to finish. But then they wanted to, to sound check. So this guy came on stage and he just started playing his, his guitar. And then they, he started singing and the sun was going down and the, it was perfect temperature. And, you know, the trees are swaying around. And, and although, you know, there's probably only 20 of us you know, running around, setting up tables and getting sound stuff going um, it was like our own concert, you know? Mm-hmm. So we all just sat there on the lawn for a second and listened to him sound check that one song mm-hmm. and, um, waiting for my real life to begin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was just, it's one of those, it's like those magical moments. Mm-hmm. And there was so many of those at the amphitheater and at the, at the green room where, you know, once the music started to play at the, the whole world was okay. Everything mm-hmm. was right. Oh, that sounds amazing. You actually paint a picture there. So the amphitheater has that space where you can just, the pine trees in the background, Pepsi logos all over. (laughs) Who'd you say was pissed at the Pepsi logo? Les Claypool. I don't know if you've ever heard of Primus. 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 Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. He didn't like Pepsi, huh? Well, I I think that the commercialization of music is probably... Yeah, what he was against. Stoked, yeah. He's a very iconoclast type person, isn't he? It's pretty. Yeah, he's pretty intense, and, and he plays genius. uniquely. Like it comes, like it's evident in the way he plays, even right. Yeah, yeah. he kind of redefined the way bass. a lot of people play bass. Yeah, yeah. And he shoots uh, army men with oh, uh, an airsoft gun. Yeah, <laughs> he was a sweetheart backstage, and their whole band. You know, I, I think sometimes the the bands that have been on tour for a long time. Are just they they are grateful to be on tour you know the the artist side of them is um you know they found success so the artist side of them isn't as you know bitter at the music industry or just as rambunctious as you get when you're in your your mm-hmm. 20s you know mm-hmm. when you're a band like that mm-hmm. and so it, it's they're usually really respectful of mm-hmm. the staff and that's the most important thing for me and yeah then they put on a really good show mm-hmm. like an amazing show yeah and giant astronauts and it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of thinks outside the box, huh? <laughs> He's out there. He definitely yeah. does. <laughs> Psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. He's on a different plane. <laughs> he is. Um, yeah, I, uh, 
when you were describing that artist from Prairie Home Companion playing and sitting out there, it reminds me, I saw the Abbott Brothers out there at the amphitheater and it, it, it is when the temperature's right and it's that time of evening. Um, it's magical. It's an energy that's, that seems so much more synergistic and big, bigger than what the parts of it seem to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty special. It's a, we were lucky to have that venue. I, I was at that show too. It was an amazing show. Mm-hmm. And I do think that sometimes... You know the artists tap into their their fans, but mm-hmm. it's really really cool to see when they like tap into the nature around them because mm-hmm. they're usually not playing in a venue like that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just really appreciative of that. And yeah, mm-hmm. we had some really good times. Yeah, one thing I want to follow up on when you were talking about the green room, you talked about um, not being uh, hot anymore, or the revenue starts to decline at some juncture. And you talked about essentially the identity dissipating, like uh, you were having karaoke nights and other things. And, and it, it sounded like you felt like the identity kind of became diffuse. Um, and and if I put that together and what you shared about coming to your own identity of being an entrepreneur and knowing how to express ideas or not, and then how to move forward with them, what was that moment like? That I imagine that to be really tough because... Basically, the identity is dissipating. And for you, you were also growing and knowing what you wanted out of something. And that wasn't becoming that. Yeah, that's the I think that was the most traumatic part was, you know, we my buddy and my or my buddy and I uh, borrowed money from our folks and our folks are not wealthy people, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to buy the business and to start it. And so assuming that debt and then assuming and that responsibility, the ownership there. And then assuming, you know, a pretty large lease, which in retrospect was a poor decision. And then being very undercapitalized, meaning like we had zero dollars coming in. We just assumed that we were going to make the money and, mm-hmm. and be able to roll it over. All of those things put us, you know, a few years in when the sales started to go down and we just didn't have any money. Like we couldn't even pay our taxes. We couldn't you know, pay people. That weighs so heavily on and I was maybe 31 or 32 years old, and it just weighs so heavily on you that um, you start to do whatever you can to make money. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, you step back and you're like, well, you know, we're doing all of these different things to be able to make money, but, you know, who are we really? Mm-hmm. And couldn't even answer that question. Mm-hmm. And we, were, we had committed so, so much and didn't have any sort of an exit strategy or potential for exit that that's when it got too much. Like mm-hmm. way too much, but um, but yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the price you pay when you go into business. You, there's some learning lessons there. Yeah, potentially. I think I think right there though, that's such a valuable lesson to know. I don't know if you're saying this or not, but essentially, um, when you lose the identity and you're just trying to earn the money, it it, it may lose its purpose and fulfillment. Even let's let's even say the money ended up coming from doing those alternative things. But there's also a connection just to who you are and knowing who you are and what you want to be as an individual and as an entity that may bring fulfillment and purpose, irregardless of income, revenue or not. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's that's very, very true. And yeah, I think the lack of purpose um, for most businesses or the lack of a, a mission in general um, is where they get disconnected from why they started the business to where they end up Mm -hmm. and that definition. And then I think, 
I've never been great at boundaries, and but establishing boundaries and reestablishing focus, you know, into what you do and how you do it, and staying away from the things that you don't do well, um, is how a lot of people, you know, some people intuitively do it, and mm-hmm. they're successful in their business so much quicker, or their artistry, um, and other people just try to be everything for everybody, and it's it's not a death sentence, but it's just not healthy mm-hmm. for me. It wasn't healthy for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get the sense you've really paid attention to your experiences and learned from them and then applied them and have you gone forward in your business and in your work. Um, I was curious to know who are some of the influences and the material that you've read that has also influenced how you approach your business? That's a good question um, and very intuitive of you. I think you guys get paid to be intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, <laughs> the um, Yeah, I, I, did, I did realize that I'm... Uh, you know, not great at focus. I'm not great at boundaries. Like, you know, all of those types of things. Um, I need to do a little bit more homework and research and planning before, you know, I, I talk through an idea. So all those things we mentioned before are results of, you know, getting slapped on the wrist and then having a really hard lesson learned and then hopefully never doing it again. But I would say, you know, a majority of what I consume, my favorite podcast um, next to you guys is uh, is How I Built This. And, you know, it's Guy Raz and he's got a, another leadership podcast. But I listen to a whole lot of those types of things where it's other entrepreneurs talking through what they've gone through and, and how they navigate the brain that they've got. And that really helps in a lot of different ways try and figure out, you know, where my blind spots and shortcomings are and how to be able to either compensate or correct behavior Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, But yeah, from a book perspective, I always talk about um, Elizabeth Gilbert and she's got a book, Big Magic, I think it's it's called, Mm -hmm. and how she channels as an artist, as a writer, um, her visions. And then, I don't know, I think that that one was pretty impactful for me to be able to understand what it takes to have an idea come to you, disassociate the fact that there's an idea that comes from you and it's yours mm-hmm. versus that it's not necessarily yours. It's just you're a vessel to bring the idea to life. And that's helped redefine a lot of things for me. Yeah. When I hear you mention that, like it brings up this idea of it's easy to get attached to the idea is this is something that's mine. And I don't know, I was wondering if you, when you share ideas, does that feel vulnerable for you? Does that feel like, you're putting yourself out there and in some way that can really be rejected or in some way that can be really be accepted. For sure. I, I don't think that there's anything more vulnerable in my life than sharing ideas at this point. Yeah. When you have a business fail, a business where you egotistically have bragged that it's yours, that you are the, the reason for success, um, you'll start to find enough that humility will start to come, you know, pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Yeah, and then does does what Elizabeth Gilbert speaks to, does that help you sort of step back from it or maybe, you know, kind of unhook a little bit from that idea or feeling attached to it in a certain way? It does for sure. Uh, you know, she speaks to, I'm going to butcher this, but, you know, she talks about how the ancient Greeks used to call them, you know, you used to say that you're with genius, not a genius, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, an idea comes to you, you make a sculpture, you set it free and then, you know, it has nothing to do necessarily with you as much as like the idea had come to you and it's, you're, you're disassociating the, that owner or not even the ownership, but you're, you're disassociating from the need to feel the pressure that comes along with that's mine and I created it. Do you like it? Like the, that conversation. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's what unlocked that for me is that, you know, all of my ideas aren't my ideas. You know, they, they come to me and hopefully they'll, they'll come to life one day and then I set them free just like a butterfly. They can fly away. Sure. And, um, and that it's not necessarily me that is the reason why they're successful or not successful, that there's a lot of factors. There's so many things that go into bringing an idea to life. And yeah, that's helped me a lot to, I don't know, number one, not share a lot of ideas, but number two, when the ideas are shared to be as vulnerable as possible because, you know, the ownership isn't there. It's, it's really just like a crazy concept. And my close friends understand that, but saying that to a stranger or somebody I've just met, um, is still not a good idea or not something that I, I do. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned like the, the process there is for you to sort of view yourself as a vessel through which this idea travels and then sort of gets made or let out into the world. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we try and, and tell that with our, you know, our designers at work, it's the same thing, you know, they'll design something and then they'll be really nervous when presenting it to a client. And there's a million ways to interpret mm -hmm. the logo or whatever it is that they're designing. Um, and trying to, to disassociate that idea, that ownership that or not necessarily ownership, but just them taking the feedback personally, mm -hmm. um, is really difficult, but we try and preach that as often as possible. And that's where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's a shift in the paradigm in the business world. Like listening to you, you, like I hear artists talk that way about art, creating music, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, I don't know that. Like, I think this is the first time I've heard that paradigm used to refer to business ideas. Yeah. Just ideas. Right. Yeah. 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 I think you need, and you could probably go back to any, you know, when you ask the vulnerability question of people, um, there's probably a lot of different ways you could interpret that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd be curious. I have this question in my mind. I wonder if, if this geographic area do you think that has any influence on the way that you're a vessel for ideas? So what influence does here and the surrounding area have on the, the business ideas that you develop? That's a good question. I, I can't under, I can't overemphasize the amount of influence Flagstaff has had on me. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, growing up, I grew up in Orlando or outside of Orlando. And so it's a pretty big city. Um, you know, we had different, priorities in life, you know, as I got older, you know, you go into professional sports games or, you know, you've got to buy a fancy car and you've got to get your degree. And there's kind of a track in bigger cities, you know, that you feel like you're on. And there's also this, you know, lack of connectivity and it had to do with my age as well at that time. But where I just don't, I didn't feel connected to my community and the people around me. And, um, in the second I got to Flagstaff, I was like, Oh, this makes sense. Like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, this mm -hmm. is, this is what makes me feel whole. And in doing that, I've met a lot of other people, like-minded people in town that, um, have felt natural when they got here. And because of those people and their influences and the shift in how we do what we do, um, business-wise, it's just, I don't know. It bleeds into everything we do. I mean, all to the point where at Mojo now, we only hire people that will move and want to live in Flagstaff. It's a big part of our interview process. Mm -hmm. So just the flag, the town itself is something that's become part of the process in which you bring people into the company. For sure. Because the, the culture that this town has, you know, from an environmentally conscious, socially conscious, 
um, outdoor minded, you know, those values, those core values aren't everywhere. And when it clicks for somebody, um, that use that same person usually clicks for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really neat to hear. I could see how those would line up and just be natural for for the for this community. Yeah, it took us. You know, last summer we hired a couple of remote people, and um, we didn't quite understand how much of the the core values of Flagstaff were important to our business until we looked at people's core values that lived somewhere else and what was most important to them. And cause, because everybody we had hired was already in Flagstaff. And so they had chosen to be here. And yeah. so they, they just naturally aligned well with us and our principles until we hired some people outside of Flagstaff. And we realized, wow, or, you know, organically we've been really fortunate up till this point, And now we need to be a little bit more intentional yeah. in how we hire based on that. Yeah. What were those differences in core values? You know, a, a lot of it is just their day to day, you know, like where they are and, and what they're doing. And it, to no fault of, of theirs, it's just a misalignment of our core values to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the expectations or the, I don't know, the overall vibe of what's important to them. I don't know, politically and environmentally and, you know, a lot of the social issues, just like little things that you would hope align well, like from coworker to coworker became, you know, a small point of friction. And it was, I don't know, I didn't identify, we have three core values that we've identified, but Mm -hmm. I haven't identified which one was, or in others, what was misaligned. Different. I just knew that they didn't, they weren't vibing with our, our vibe. Yeah. Yeah. What are Mojo's three core values? Oh, geez. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. I, you I was like, I, I set this up, didn't I? <laughs> you can ask him what Beyond the Binds are. Just see if he can name it. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll go back and forth. We got five. We'll okay. see. Yeah, Cody's pulling right now. I'm going to look it up real quick. Families are number one, and it's really important. Um, connection <laughs> is another one that's extremely important. We want to stay connected. You know, our mission in, is to build community as a business. And um, so, yeah. Oh man, and I have a mouse pad. We have a really cool design mouse pad that has everything that. Yeah. Oh, really? That's a out. good idea. Yeah, yeah. And then we have our, through EOS, we have like our whole, it's called the Vision Traction Organizer, but it spells out all of our values and why we do what we do and who we are as people. And we actually just translated that. Now all of the people on the team each have their own, where they have to define their own core values and what their purpose and their cause and one year, three year, 10 year goals. And it's yeah. been a difficult process, but it's really cool to be able to know what's most important to someone. I feel like, oh, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I do feel like a majority of the conflict in the world comes from people's lack of identity or lack of understanding who they are or really knowing who they are sitting down and trying to peel that, that bat, that onion back. And so we're, we're trying to, uh, it took us a long time to figure out who we were as a business. And now we're working with the team, um, through a coach to try and figure out you know, who they are and then really coach and grow uh, the business, you know, in six, eight, ten different other factors outside of just revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll, we'll uh, look up your values and post them on there since Cody <laughs> felt the need to put you on the spot and Cody yeah. cheated and has now pulled up 
Yeah. Well, it is funny. Like, uh, there's been times where we referenced our values, even with our own company, and I always draw a blank. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, there's this one. And yeah, we had this that stuff's ex- really important to us. I promise you. Uh, there's this one, <laughs> and this one's important too. What was that one called? <laughs> Which word? Yeah. yeah. That was recently in our vision meeting <laughs> where Cody did the same thing, reference our values. And then one, one team member was like, well, what are the values again? <laughs> Uh, and then it was like that? Cody and I <laughs> fumbling. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So I, I really uh, relate to you in that experience right there. <laughs> to, I might have just been trying to pull you into my own misery in that, that experience I had. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the vision people are supposed to know those things. But it, it was, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was no, really powerful. Um, it, it was really powerful. And, and we shared this. We're part of a mastermind group with a whole bunch of other agency owners. And we shared how important it was at any point of conflict or when an issue was brought up that the very first discussion point or at least the filter that you need to run that issue through is the core values. And then now because it's kind of our North Star with the core values. Right. And so if they have an issue, regardless with someone else on the team or with a client or with, you know, like how does that how is that directly reflected in our core values? And then if we run it through that, my partner, Austin's really, really good at this. Um, typically we come up with an answer, you know, nine times out of 10 right away with it either aligns or doesn't align. It's a yes or a no. And it just, it takes away all of that normal discussion and it's, it removes a tremendous amount of drama, which is really cool. Well, so in, in thinking about how things work for you all and that question about, um, this area's influence, even the direction you've gone in the last year to make some selection based on this area and people's comfort with this area or willingness to live here. Um, overall, we, we like to ask our guests what are in, in one or two sentences or a handful of sentences, how would you define Flagstaff? Yeah, this is my favorite question. Well, one of my favorite questions. And I, I do think it's the people. I think that the people in Flagstaff are very connected to nature and in doing so are very connected to themselves and in being connected with themselves, much more open to being connected with others. And it creates this just really amazing, like a tight knit community. Yeah. So neat. Uh, for me, Rand, I just really, I want to say thank you for taking the time out of a Saturday morning to sit with Dan and I, and, uh, this has been a great pleasure to, you know, one, just to get to know you more and also get to learn from you and hear your story and different concepts and ideas that have been influential in your life. And so I just want to say thank you for stopping by Le Chateau. <laughs> Can I double down and say thanks for coming today, but also thanks for the handful of times that you've met with us and tolerated just our jackassery. <laughs> yeah, this blatant jackassery. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, wor- I'm working on being gracious in the moment and not dismissing that. Um, so thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. And, you know, every time I leave a meeting with you guys, I just feel inspired and I, I definitely feel more connected. And then as I was listening to, you know, your podcast and the different pods, um, I was just like, man, you know, if I could start a podcast, this is what it would look like. It just wouldn't be as good. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm grateful for you guys to be able to, to be, to, I don't know. I, I share a lot of alignment with who you guys are and what you're doing. So I'm a big fan. So thank you for doing the podcast.
Yeah. Let's You're very see. generous. <laughs> very very you. generous. Yeah. Our new tagline, we still got a recorded intro, but our new tagline is underproduced and overstated. <laughs> and we developed that at breakfast with you, man. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We need more Martans. Yeah, yeah Martans. Stuff like that. Uh, good ideas flowing from them. Chilequiles. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. Boom. Blammo. We're back in the chateau. Whammo? Whammo? Whammo. Rand just dipped out. Man, that was a good time. It's good to see. Yeah, good to spend some time with Randa. Yeah. He he really is kind of like a Yoda slash Mr. Rogers. Yeah, we're gonna have to revisit the the whatever those words were, but he really is. <laughs> like his energy is just so mellow. Yeah. Yeah, he seemed very thoughtful in response. He was. Um so the thing I would take from sitting with Rand is uh, there's this connection to self that exists there. Yeah. And I think it results in a connection to others and connection to the environment generally. Mm-hmm. He especially uh, emphasized that connection to nature at the end yeah. of the interview there. But um, for me, <laughs> there was this moment where he was talking about how the minute you connect the success of an idea to you yeah. or like your ego mm-hmm. steps in there. That you're going to be humbled real quick. To set up, huh? So when he was talking about being a vessel, essentially, for ideas, mm-hmm. rather than seeing if an idea becomes successful as a product of you. Yeah. Um, and if you begin to see it that way, he said humility is on its way. Yeah, it sounds like a setup for sure. That was really interesting. I'd never heard that idea before, like when he was referencing the sculptors. Mm-hmm. And just there's an idea out there and then that flows through the person and then there's the product of the sculpture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the person being the creator, I guess, of mm-hmm. that sculpture being a vessel. Mm-hmm. That was a really neat thing to hear. Yeah. What'd you get from it? Uh, man, there's so much. I really enjoyed how he was threading together those things at the end with connection to nature, resulting in a connection to self and with a stronger connection to self, producing a connection to others. I thought it was really neat and just drives with what we talk about a lot in our own values. Mm-hmm. Um, I love just hearing him talk about kind of being a visionary and his ideas and what it's like for him to share. Um, I think you got to learn from him a little bit just in like his process and what filters he applies to how he approaches his ideas and that sort of thing. Um, and then honestly, <laughs> I really enjoyed just talking, like hearing his stories about music, like mm-hmm. the ICP thing <laughs> cracks me up, man. So what, do you remember anymore? You guys didn't yeah. get more into it. The conversation steered away from it, but yeah. I, was, I was wondering what happened at the barbershop? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my understanding was that someone had, had, um, made fun of ICP at the barbershop, <laughs> the one in downtown there, like on LaRue street by Collins. Or maybe it was on the south side. At any rate, someone made fun of him. And I think the guy from ICP had fought this person and then was arrested. And I guess that happened before the show. Again, that's hearsay. So I don't know if that's actually how it unfolded or not. But I remember seeing that in the newspaper and just laughing. Like I thought that was (laughs) ICP. Yeah. Oh, man. Just taking a juggalo fist to the face. Man, that's going to land you in jail. Well... Man, that would be so embarrassing. <laughs> well, kind of the whole thing, right? <laughs> like just the whole, just being involved, just the whole thing, yeah. At any level, yeah. Like, oh man, how was the tour? Ah, man, well, I got arrested in this place called Flagstaff. Yeah. Well, I'm actually thinking embarrassing from the other angle. Like, 
to somehow get yourself intertwined with that caliber. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I think it's kind of respectful. I see it as respectful. <laughs> you're doing humanity a favor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then you're coupled with that for the yeah, remainder of your life. It does suck. Yeah. Yeah. I do love that stuff. Like hearing him talk about ICP, like what a bummer it was cleaning up after everyone. Yeah. Like the image in my mind of Les Claypool shooting down toy soldiers with an air rifle. <laughs> Like, that's beautiful. <laughs> Maybe taking the airsoft rifle to the Pepsi logo. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. I just love that stuff. Yeah. I thought that was really fun to hear. Yeah. yeah. Great stories. Yeah. Yeah. It, he he really is connected to himself. Uh, for you, I do worry about how validating it was to him, for him to talk about just allowing <laughs> ideas that have no practicality. <laughs> well, he does a lot circulate. better job of filtering them. I think I heard him in that, but I have no intention of applying that. Oh, I still... He just let me down. <laughs> yeah. I actually was hoping that he could take you under his wing and, and teach you a little bit about that filter. How to hone in what what to let go of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, well, I, get, I was saying in the interview, I get sick jollies out of watching ideas land with you and just seeing what happens. <laughs> just, uh, just come to a halt. <laughs> and seeing what, what avenue is Dan going to take this time to shoot yeah. this down. Yeah. That was a great interview. Yeah, yeah thank appreciate you, Appreciate the time with him, yeah. Yeah. So why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. You can always find us on the interwebs, www.beyondflag.com, flag spelled F-L-G. And we are on that Instagram. We are beyond underscore flag, and we are on that Twitter, too. Exclamation point, <laughs> beyond underscore flag. Okay. You know, I actually avoided posting something to Twitter the other day because I had to sign in. I was like, ah, that sounds like too much work. <laughs> I'll let it go. You can hit us up on Instagram. <laughs> but make sure to check that that Twitter feed when you get that alarm on your phone. There you go. Yes, the Salience Network at work. All right, well, take care. Loveys. You feel that way? Uh, yeah, I mean, not in my personal experience. Mine's always been really closer, close, closer, closer closer and really good never hiccups um oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> i'm dead you're dead you are oh man you're dead i'm so dead you're so dead oh man oh uh, we gotta get back on track yeah, yeah. we'll just edit that <laughs> <laughs>